I had so much to drink, I'm still hungover two weeks later. (laughs) (laughs) But what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. Fascinating. Get away from her, you bitch! Welcome to the Nerdfest podcast. Today we've got Dan Watkins, Ian McLaughlin, Peter Johnson, John Farthing, and I'm Hazel Burton. On the show today we've got our film buff or film bluff quiz. And Ian May will be joining us from the void to give us some background for Marvel's Phase 4 and 5. We've also got the return of Shameful Gap and it's Dan this time he's to own up and admit he hasn't seen an amazing film. Amazing is a word, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are we going to be talking about later, Dan? Well, I had never seen the film Face Off. Shame. <gasps> but now I have. Excellent. So let's start the show. So we're going to do our film buff or film bluff quiz. This is where we all have three pieces of entertainment trivia, but we have made one of those facts up. Uh, We don't know which one it is. We've got to try and work that out. So, Dan, have you got three things to bluff us with? I do. With the news that Ewan McGregor will be returning to the role of Obi-Wan Kenobi for a Disney Plus series, I've got three facts about Obi-Wan Kenobi. Hmm. Number one, George Lucas named Obi-Wan's home planet after former Daily Show host Jon Stewart. Number two, and one of George Lucas's ranches is named after Obi-Wan Kenobi. Number three, Alec Guinness's portrayal of Obi-Wan Kenobi is the only Star Wars performance to be Oscar-nominated. Okay, so Ooh, what do planet. we think his home planet was? Stuart. <laughs> Daily Show. Daily Show. Daily Show. <laughs> Daily Show. <laughs> so what is the planet called? The planet is named after John Stewart. So what is its name? <laughs> I cannot tell you that's further a, details. That's a really crazy fact, though. You kind of think that's true. Yeah, I, I'm i pretty sure Alec Guinness was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. He he was, whether it's the only Oscar-nominated role. But the, I, I think, you know, I think Hayden Christensen was definitely nominated. It should have been. Really? <laughs> Sam. Are you, are you mad? <laughs> Did that come across as genuine? I can lie. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a series of films not noted for its performances. No. So, certainly, I don't think any of the newer ones have been nominated. It's just whether Carrie or Harrison got a shout, but I don't think they did. I don't think they did, no. So, I think that's true. And there is a bar Obi-Wan in Indiana Jones, isn't there? And And there's a Skywalker ranch. There's a Skywalker ranch, yep. And I wonder if that's what he's bluffing us with. How many ranches does he have? He's got his, like, whole editing suite in Mm -hmm. Skywalker ranch, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, But... Maybe he has a, a holiday home or two. A I holiday think. ranch, in fact. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think that's the one that's most likely to be fake. I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I concur. <laughs> we think the ranch. I think it's the ranch. Unified. And you're all correct. Yay! So there is a rancho Obi-Wan, but it's owned by Steve Sansweet, who has the world's largest collection of Star Wars memorabilia. And you can go on tours of Rancho Obi-Wan, but it's not one of George Lucas's. Obi-Wan's home planet is named after John Stewart. It's called Stew John. <laughs> and, and George Lucas said this as a joke during an interview with John Stewart at Star Wars Celebration in 2010. It was added to the StarWars.com databank and is now canon. <laughs> and 
Alec Guinness is the only Star Wars performance to be nominated for an Oscar. He lost to Jason Robards for a film called Julia, which I have neither seen nor heard of. Other Star Wars actors like Natalie Portman and Lupita Nyong'o have won Oscars, just not for Star Wars. My Buffer Bluff is about famous on-set fallouts. Okay, I've been reading a book called Shootout, which is rife with stories about people who fell out on set. We're not talking about costume malfunctions, <laughs> are we? We're not. We're talking about um, people who had arguments on set. Is this the Peter Bart book, Shootout? Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. Really good. So, number one. On the set of Pearl Harbor, Ben Affleck was constantly speaking to his assistants in a derogatory manner. So, to bring him down a peg or two, Josh Hartnett called him Matt Damon for the rest of the shoot. <laughs> <laughs> Even to the extent of getting hold of his daily schedule and changing the name. Mm-hmm. Number two. During the filming of Charlie's Angels, at one point, Bill Murray stopped the shoot and gathered the three leading ladies in front of him. To Drew Barrymore, he said, I understand why you're here. To Cameron Diaz, he said, well, you've got talent. And to Lucy Liu, says, I've got no fucking idea why you're here. <laughs> 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 and the third one. On the set of Chinatown, Roman Polanski refused to let Faye Dunaway take a loo break, so she threw a coffee cup full of urine in his face. Oh. Now, I know that Bill Murray famously didn't get along with Lucy Lou on the Charlie's Angel set. I can believe that one. Yeah. I, I get so sad. I keep hearing stories about Bill Murray being an arsehole on sets and stuff, and it's such a shame. At least he's funny. Is mm. that being an arsehole? <laughs> Maybe not, no. <laughs> I'm sure I've heard the urine story before. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't heard the Ben Affleck story. I want to go for Ben Affleck. I'm going to go for that being a bluff because I've, I think I've heard roughly of the other two, but it's a brilliant bluff. It is a bluff. It's very funny. Mm. I also choose Affleck. I'm going to choose Charlie's Angels just for hell of it. Okay. Bluff is Ben Affleck. Hey. Hey. <laughs> Thought it would be. Yeah. I just don't like the man. So. <laughs> Yeah, no, uh, Roman Pulaski did uh, not treat Faye away very, very well indeed on the set of Chinatown. So possibly the worst thing he's ever done. Mm. <sighs> no. But um, yeah, I think Faye away at one point asked for a bit of direction from her director um, and he shouted in her face, just say the fucking lines and get your salary. And at one point she was driving a car and wisps of her hair were blowing in her face. So he went up to her and actually plucked the hair <laughs> out of her skull. If you ever wanted to know what a man Roman Polanski is, well, there are several pieces of evidence. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I recommend the book Shootout. It's brilliant. Really, really insightful into, the, into Hollywood from like the, the 60s. Actually, the same time of Once Upon a Time Hollywood. Really, really good. Sounds good. Okay, mine are all about Quentin Tarantino films. Mm-hmm. You may know that Sam Raimi uses a particular car in lots of his movies. Tarantino used the same car in Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, and Kill Bill 2. And Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, you know so that, that one, So that one's <laughs> true, then. He's also known for the eclectic music in his movies. The Hateful Eight is set in Western times, so he can do the usual sort of score. So it uses a piece of unused score written for the good, the bad, and the ugly. And for the third one, Michael Keaton reprises his Jackie Brown character in another movie. Hmm. Now, I know Ennio Morricone did do the score for The Hateful Eight. I was under the impression that was an original piece of music rather than a reused one. It is, because didn't he say something quite controversial about not ranking Tarantino as a talent? Mm. So there was a bit of a publicity hoo-ha. 
The Car When I Know, and it's Michael Madsen's car. I think that's in all the films, rather than Quentin Tarantino's car. Oh, it's not, not the pussy wagon. Not the pussy wagon, no. Uh, and I know the Michael Keaton one as well, because it is out of sight, the George Clooney, Jennifer Lopez They're locked, film. In, the, locked in the trunk for yeah. a while. Very sexy. And wh- why would that be? Exactly. It was just on the... Was it, well, they, they were filming at the same time, and I think they just thought it'd be quite funny to have him pop up in a cameo in, in the other film. And it's probably one of the only times I can think of where somebody has played the same character in a completely otherwise unrelated film. Okay. So what was the bluff fact? So Mother, I would go for Mother Coney is the bluff because mm. Mother Coney did the score, but it wasn't the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was an original score. Uh, okay. I am going to go for the car one because John said earlier that it was Michael Madsen's car, not Tarantino's. Oh, but did you say a particular car? The same car, car though. Or the same car. Same car. I'm still going to go for the car. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go for the car. I'm going to go for the score. I shall go for the score as well. Your chickens, a lot of you. <laughs> <laughs> Safety in numbers. <laughs> he did use the same car in all three. It's a 1980s Honda Civic, which was driven by Jackie Brown and Bruce Willis's character. And it's briefly in Kill Bill as well. It's Michael Madsen's car. And in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the car gets more screen time than Michael Madsen does. Mm. You're right that it's in a Steven Soderbergh movie, but it is for a slightly different reason. It's actually that both of them are based on Elmore Leonard novels, and the same character crops up in both novels. Mm -hmm. So the same actor plays the same role in both films. The one that is the bluff is the music for Hateful Eight, but it wasn't original music. It's unused music from The Thing that was used in Hateful Eight. Hmm. Interesting. Did not know that. Nope. You would think they're very different films. You would. I can't think of that tone of music working in The Hateful Eight, but obviously it's in there. I'll have to watch it again. Well, there are multiple versions of The Thing. There's three versions. There's mm. the original 1950s version, The Thing from Another Planet. Mm-hmm. And then there's the 80s version yeah. with Kurt Russell. And then there's the 2005, is it? 2011, Seven? I think. Yeah. Version re- reboot, which is terrible. It's the Kurt Russell one. That's okay. Ennio mm-hmm. Morricone wrote the score right. for. The 2011 one is technically a prequel, but it's one of those things where it, it fudges whether it's kind a of a prequel. Remit, but yeah. It doesn't really work it out. It's like they, they look at the story of the Scandinavian camp mm-hmm. beforehand, which is essentially exactly the same story, but with more CGI. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, the footage doesn't exist, but they filmed it with practical effects like the original or like the 1980s one. Mm-hmm. And the studio insisted that all the practical effects be replaced with CGI, and it just looks awful. It is terrible. Maybe it looked even worse with mm-hmm. the uh, practical effects. Ian. Hello. 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 Hi, yes, I've got a bluff <laughs> for you. And uh, my three questions are on the famous tearjerker from the 80s, Ghost. Oh. Mm. It's a lovely film. Very nice indeed. But, the uh, only film three... to which Patrick Swayze could conceivably make a sequel. Oh, John. Oh, you fucker. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I have, I have three statements to make from the film mm-hmm. one of them is a bluff the other mm. all true so here we go uh, for the pottery scene Demi Moore was offered a two week course in pottery to prepare herself for the film but she refused saying that she felt the character should not perhaps be such a good pottery person yeah right Potter. <laughs> that's bollocks <laughs> the part in the film where you cry the most of course is when one says I love you and the other one says ditto but in early versions of the script, Ditto wasn't there. It was also. And fact number three, uh, Patrick Swayze um, had to 
chew on ice before the scenes when he was a ghost so that his breath could be seen on camera. I don't think that would work, would it? Uh, no, so that his breath couldn't be seen on camera. Uh, so is it the fact that she refused to have pottery lessons? Is it the fact that the uh, word ditto was originally also? Or did uh, Patrick Swayze chew ice? Mm. Which one of those is a lie? Well, if Swayze had pottery lessons, then Demi Moore wouldn't need to, because they're doing it in tandem. I think that's a lie. It's also, like two weeks? Two weeks of pottery doesn't make you a potter. <laughs> Ian, Ian, say the word ditto. Ditto. Now say the word also. Also. Yeah, it's the same. I didn't, they must have dubbed over that. So I'm just like, I'm looking at your mm-hmm. mouth and how it moves. No, I think he, I don't think no, he's it, it, wasn't, claiming... it wasn't redubbed, but they, they, they changed the script oh, just before ew. filming from, they felt that the word ditto was better representative I of I, me too, rather than also. That does make sense. I don't yeah. know if it's true, but it makes sense. Also is a bit dull, isn't it? Mm. And Star Wars did they, I Love You, I Know, which was a much better version of the same scene. Grammatically, it doesn't work. Samesies. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I love you. Psych! Back at you. <laughs> I was looking down in the eye when I said I love you there. It was a, a little bit awkward for a second. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do. Dan was <laughs> pleased. Yep. I'm going to go for pottery. Ice cubes. Ditto. <laughs> Wait. Also ice cubes or ditto? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go for ice cubes as well. So you think ice cubes is yep. the bluff? Yeah. And you think that the pottery, the pottery lesson is a bluff? Is the bluff. What did you say? Ditto. Ditto as well. Ditto is the bluff. Oh. It was always in the script. Debbie Moore did refuse uh, pottery lessons because she thought it would be pointless because she... Um, that it was better that she was more amateurish in, in doing it. That's my uh, excuse for work as well, when I sent on training courses. I, I think I'm better as an amateur. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, I have got some James Bond facts for Ooh. you. Mm. Okay, James Bond fact number one. During his tenure as James Bond... What's the guy's name? Uh, Sean Connery. No, the last this one. This one's Daniel the bluff. Craig. Roger Moore. This is no. the bluff. Timothy Dalton. This is the bluff. Piers Brosnan. Piers Brosnan. Brosnan. <laughs> Piers Brosnan. This is the bluff. <laughs> this one. Yes. Sorry. Start again. Tell me you didn't do it. Just, the funny thing is, Dan and I both looked at each other as you started talking, thinking, he's lying, isn't he? <laughs> uh, okay. During his, during his tenure as James Bond, Pierce Brosnan was contractually not allowed to wear a tuxedo in any other film. Yeah, that's true. That's mm-hmm, true. Yep. Hey, number, <laughs> number two, during the scene in Thunderball where the sharks are running to get James Bond, or swimming towards James Bond. Running. running. <laughs> the, 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 uh, where the sharks are swimming towards James Bond. Yes. Uh, the way that they decided to do it was to get a dead shark on a piece of string and pull it past James Bond. Um, this backfired when it turned out, as they started shooting, the shark wasn't quite dead. <laughs> <laughs> started thrashing about, which attracted all the other sharks towards it and caused, uh, <laughs> caused chaos. <laughs> <laughs> uh, finally, the film Live and Let Die the Rolling Stones originally recorded a theme tune and they recorded a theme tune called Welcome to Bond Age. Thinking about the age of mm-hmm. Bond. But there was lots of reference in, in the song to chains and whips and being tied down. And they realised the Rolling Stones were actually singing about bondage rather than the Bond Age. And the song was dropped and replaced with The Wings Live and Let Die. 
That does pass the John Pun test. Yeah. It does, but come on, Charles. Yeah. Oh, my God, it's still alive. <laughs> However, did Pierce Brosnan wear a tuxedo in anything like the Thomas Crown Affair? That is true that he wasn't allowed yeah. it. It was in the contract. Probably the sharks, then. Do you reckon? I don't, I don't know. There's two very plausible. He's done well here. Really? Yeah, well, there, there are two really obvious lies. <laughs> One of which must be true. I'm going to go for the Rolling Stones. Welcome to the Bond Age is a, an awful title for a song. And mm-hmm. if it's true, they deserve to be um, rubbed out of history. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. And also, they would be very different as a band to have done a Bond theme to everyone else. I don't know. I mean, Jack White's done one. Um, Chris Cornell did yeah, one. Yeah, but if you look but at everyone up to that point. Up to that point, yeah. Yeah, well, they'll go with a different direction. They were trying to be more modern. In 1987, so they were living that dies 1971, something like that. I'm going Rolling Stones. I'm going Jaws 5, Thunderball. (laughs) Yeah, I'll go with a shark. Rolling Stones. If you said the Rolling Stones, you were correct. That is the bluff. What? They, uh, They did try and drag a dead shark past Sean Connery. And the shark wasn't quite dead. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, probably oh, wow. the shark started thrashing about. Lots of other sharks went, oh, it's a shark, went towards it, and they had to pull the stunt guy out of the water very, very quickly. So they decided to drag a dead shark past. So did they go and buy a dead shark? <laughs> I, well, they were presumably... ripped off by someone. When it wasn't actually, or did they, someone knock it, like, oh, we'll hit it a few times what, to kill it? The, did it become a hammerhead shark? Yeah. Oh, I, 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 think yeah. what, I, I think what happened is they killed it or thought they'd killed it, but hadn't done a very good job on killing the shark. Were they keeping it underwater the whole time? Because they drowned. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon they pulled it out of the water and just let it flap around a bit. Yeah, then put it back in, maybe. Put it back that in, think, oh, that's dead now. Yeah. And of course, uh, they don't die that quickly. No, I mean, sharks. Greetings, listeners. Other Ian here, infrequent contributor to the fest that is nerd. Speaking to you from the void, which is the name of the cupboard, Hazel, Peter and John keep me locked in, with nothing but an iPad and a Wi-Fi connection for company. Now, I've noticed that Marvel have announced a lot of their Phase 4 and even Phase 5 movie and TV projects. There's a ton of TV schedule for Disney+, Plus, but none of it's due for a while, which gives us nerds a lot of time to research the comic books that will be mined for stories. Now, I thought I'd use my limited knowledge of these things to put together a few suggestions of things you might want to read to get ahead of the curve. If you want to know about The Eternals, which is filming at Pinewood Studios as we speak, this is the film starring Angelina Jolie and uh, Rob Stark himself, Richard Madden. I'd recommend you look at the Neil Gaiman-written miniseries from 2006, It's a very self-contained story that touches on the Eternals' place in the world and their connection to the Celestials, which are a race of giant super-beings we've already seen in the MCU. It also explains how an immortal race of superhumans could have lived in plain sight for thousands of years without us seeing them yet. She-Hulk's another show which I think could be a lot of fun, and if you want to get a sense of what that might be like, have a look at writer Dan Slott's work on the character. He uh, worked on Jennifer Walters for years, and he brings a good sort of dramatic and comedic sensibility to the character. He's really defined the character as kind of a gamma-powered Ally McBeal, which I think would be a lot of fun on TV. Now, there's a Loki TV show coming. If you take a look at the logo that Marvel have released, it's written in multiple fonts, which I think implies we're going to get multiple Lokis, which is a staple of the comics, and will take a bit of weight off Tom Hiddleston, 
Now, the, in the comics, there's a female Loki, there's a, an old, gnarled, like, grimy Loki, and very compellingly, there's a kid Loki. And sometimes these characters fight each other. Now, it's well worth looking at writer Kieran Gillen's run on Kid Loki in Journey into Mystery. You'll find this glorious trickster, not-quite-villain in a, in a world of mischief, and it's a, a really entertaining take on the character. Now, while you're at it, check out Kieran Gillen and frequent collaborator Jamie McKelvey's run on Young Avengers. This was the second iteration of that super team and features many characters we're going to see in film and TV coming up. Kate Bishop, the, the new Hawkeye. Wiccan and Speed are both likely to turn up in WandaVision. You have Hulkling and Marvel Boy, who've both got stories connected to the Skrull and the Kree, which of course we've seen in Captain Marvel. And there's also the interdimensional badass space princess, Miss America Chavez, who's rumoured to be in a number of places in upcoming MCU projects. Now, the one I'm really interested in is Moon Knight, which is probably a Phase 5 TV show, but we'll see how that progresses. So Moon Knight's character was invented in 1975, and is one of a few characters that get called Marvel's Batman. Now, there's a tiny bit of credence to this claim, but the difference between the two is interesting. Now, a novelist called Charlie Houston worked on the character in 2006, and he defined their differences as, Batman fights crime to avenge the murders of his parents whereas Moon Knight beats up whoever has it coming because he feels he's the avatar of an Egyptian god of vengeance, and it helps him feel better about the people he killed when he was a mercenary. Now this is a really interesting character. Son of a rabbi and former marine Mark Spector became a mercenary with very dubious morals. During one of his sort of mercenary missions, he was left for dead by another mercenary in the Egyptian desert. He was dying, he was growing cold, and natives took him to uh, a temple and put him before the statue of the Egyptian god Khonshu. Now Khonshu appeared to him and offered him his life in return for becoming this god's avatar on earth, Moon Knight, the fist of Khonshu. What the stories have looked like over the past 40 years, which is how old the character is, is there's a guy who may or may not be possessed by a god doing street-level, slightly supernatural crime fighting in New York. There's been lots of writers and lots of different takes, but one of my favourites is the Warren Ellis Declan Shalvey written run from 2014. This is a six-issue miniseries called From the Dead, and each issue is a self-contained story. Now, it revamped the character as kind of a, a sort of techno-horror character, someone who fought crime with gadgets, but also had this weight of a god in his mind. It's a good fit for TV, and I think something very different from stuff Marvel have done before. To so take a normal, kind of marvelly supernatural story... A bunch of violent ghosts start haunting an area of New York. Now, if this was a Doctor Strange story, he'd investigate the ghosts, find a sorcerer behind summoning them, kind of teach them the error of their ways. Whereas Moon Knight will dress up in a suit made of bones and beat the crap out of the ghosts. Now, I'm not sure if that's the angle that the TV show will go for, but I think it could be some really fertile territory and something new to the MCU. See you, nerds. Now it's time for a segment we like to call Shameful Gap. This is when one of his nerds has not seen something very famous and should have done and watches it for the very first time and talks about it. So, who has got the Shameful Gap today? It's me. What are you owning up to? Well, it transpires that I had never seen the 1997 action classic Face Off. Shame. Is it though? Yes. <laughs> oh, we're we're going to have disagreements, son. Yeah. I think we probably we're, we're are. We're going to have disagreements. Yeah, you like Face Off, don't you? I love Face Off. Mm. I love Face Off as well. Yes. Peter's well, indifferent. <laughs> I, I have now seen it, thanks to the wonders of YouTube. 
to which the whole film has been uploaded. <laughs> um, I was able to watch it the other night for the very first time. Uh, so what's the plot? The plot, as far as I can establish, is Nicolas Cage plays a terrorist called Castor Troy. At the beginning of the film, he is trying to assassinate John Travolta's character, but accidentally kills his young son, which sets Travolta on a five, six-year mission to try and stop Castor Troy. He finally arrests him, takes him into custody, but he's in a coma. His brother knows about a massive bomb that's about to go off in Los Angeles and will only talk to Nicolas Cage. So the only way to get the information out of him is to use pioneering yet top secret surgery to surgically take John Travolta's face off his body and place Nicolas Cage's on there instead. It's the only logical choice. Yes. I'll get to that. Which, um, <laughs> which duly happens. Travolta is then sent to the prison where Nicolas Cage's brother is being held. How he's going to pass the information about the bomb on when he's locked away in the prison and everybody thinks he's Nicolas Cage is never established nor explained. But meanwhile, Nicolas Cage wakes up from his coma without a face and gets the surgeon to put John Travolta's face on his face, then kills everyone who knows about it. So now he's pretending to be John Travolta. Nobody figures it out. John Travolta is Nicolas Cage and nobody believes him. And they continue their cat and mouse, mouse and cat chase, eventually culminating in a huge fight with some speedboats. And Nicolas Cage gets killed with a harpoon. And luckily, the entire incredibly rare, never done before surgery is able to be easily reversed with a bunch of random surgeons who didn't even know about the possibility <laughs> of it top happening. surgeons, I believe they say. Yes. Does that sums it up, more sounds, or less? Sounds plausible. Yeah. Yes. Well, great summing up of an amazing film. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I did very much believe Nicolas Cage is this unhinged bad guy terrorist. It helps when your main introduction as a character is headbanging to handle while groping women in a choir and gurning. Um, don't know whether that was Cage acting or whether it just happened on the set and they happened to catch it with the cameras. Oh, it's uh, definitely in the script because it's yeah. the other guy's daughter that he's groping. Oh, is it? Yeah, so he's very well established as a nasty bastard who you want to see Travolta take down. The action sequences, because they're directed by John Woo, are really, really good. And that's the same throughout the film. There's fantastic stunt work, great pyrotechnics, the one-on-one -on -one stuff and the bullet ballet, as they called Gun Fu back then, is really, really good. <laughs> Gun Fu is what they call it in John Wick. Um, and this, I felt... In terms of the one-on-one -on -one stuff, you can see the influence that John Woo had on later directors. And then the speedboat chase at the end is really good. Again, when it's just Travolta and Cage, you, I got a genuine feeling that they hated each other and wanted to stop the other one. Um, so there was a good level of believability there. But speaking of believability, <laughs> this, this whole surgery thing, I just I couldn't quite get my head around it because... First of all, it's preceded by a scene where all the top-secret terrorist information is on a floppy disk. A zip drive, in fact. Yes, being the limit of you do, technology. You, well, you do know that the United States military does still use floppy disks. I did not. Mm -hmm. Yes, they do. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, mm. well, fair enough. They use uh, floppy disks to store information about nuclear weapons on, just oh. to help you sleep at night. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> yeah, um, but it was more the fact that there's actually a 3D printer creating a guy's ear in the lab from nothing. And yet they have to take his actual face off and put the other actual face on and they couldn't just 3D print? That also wasn't an option at the time, 3D printing. But you saw an ear being created in the film yeah, well, via that same technology piece, from nothing. 
Could you not have done that with a face? But then he didn't get to take his face off. Yes, I'm aware of that, but I'm just saying, <laughs> logically speaking, why do you have to go through that when you could just create it from nothing as with the ear? It's a metaphor. I know it's yeah. a metaphor, <laughs> but Mission- within this, the world of the film, it makes no sense. Mission Impossible had come out the year prior and had done it with masks. Yeah, mm. that's what I noticed as well. I like that they based an entire film on a throwaway gimmick from a Mission <laughs> Impossible film. Uh, I love how they just his body shape changes completely and everything as well. I think. They, well, they establish that they they say we're going to give you do some a liposuction, gastronomic thingy, yeah. and change your. So did Nicholas Cage just have to eat for a week? Well, presumably they did up. the whole shebang with that as well. I mean, that's a larger point with the film that your whole identity is in your face and it's not expressed any other way. They do say things like you're nearly the same height, and they're actually two inches apart. The two, yeah, actors. yeah. What's two inches between friends? Mm. Well, I was Depends wondering, they, they must have done his penis. Because, like, he shags <laughs> his wife, and they've gone to the effort to make his penis look like John Travolta's penis. Otherwise, surely his wife would go, hang on. That's, John, that's what a- do you think John Travolta's penis looks like? I'm just, I'm just you know, if, if, if we were to both slap our penises out on the... <laughs> right. On the desk. I can guarantee they look different. And Louise comes in, she's going, that's, she'd be able to point, <laughs> I would guess... <laughs> well, on, I, need Judy, someone, I need someone to kill me now. <laughs> if, if I was making Judy sweet, wants to go to one of these hen party things, and they're all given modelling clay and yeah. had to make penises. And then if she I, showed us a picture of all the, the penises and said, "Which one's yours? <laughs> that one." If I, if I was if I was to lend you my penis and you went home and you went, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your penis. Ha, you know, happy birthday, Judith. Let's have a. And she'd be like, "That's not your penis, Peter." <laughs> It's much bigger. She might. <laughs> than that one. <laughs> so they've obviously gone to the effort to make the penis look accurate. Give him a penis plastic. Yeah. And amazingly, takes very little time to recover from all that. Uh, they, they also they do say, oh, now that. we have miracle drugs. That'll they do have miracle drugs, mm-hmm. yeah. Days um, instead of weeks. It was actually the, the surgery bit that reminded me why I don't think I've ever seen it. I found the surgery sequences quite hard to watch because I'm really squeamish around that sort of mm. surgical stuff, especially when it comes to faces and facelifts and things like that. It just makes me shudder. And the bit where Nicolas Cage wakes up from his coma and has no face, these are the notes I wrote at the time. I knew there was a reason. I've never watched this film. This is why. This is a nightmare. I hate it. I can't. I can't. I'm going to have to skip this part. And I did honestly I, I did honestly feel a bit sick and had to look away and take my headphones off until that bit was over. That's the bit where he comes back, oh, that's where he a, wakes that, up. That's the bit yeah. where they explain all the plot and it makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I know. That's, that, well, I, I wondered whether that might be the case, but I just, I couldn't. I just started cringing and wanted to throw up. Uh, and that's not... For that film particularly, it's any mm. film or any footage that would have that sort of stuff in it. I just couldn't handle it. But they did kind of avoid all shots like that on the earlier sequence where they're pulling mm-hmm. faces off. They, they would always just cut away before you saw the Yeah, the, the Travolta bit was watchable. It's just once he starts taking his bandages off, they didn't show you that much, but my imagination definitely filled in the blanks. Mm-hmm. And it, oh, I, I'm shuddering thinking about it now. Never watch Hellraiser. I won't. Can we talk about the ending? Yeah, so as it was going on, I genuinely didn't know how they were going to resolve it. It felt like there were real stakes, but at the same time I was thinking, what if something happens to one of them? There's no way to fix this. How are they going to get all of this sorted out? 
And, of course, they find out that they have SWAT bodies. The FBI guys figure it out. Travolta's wife does the blood test to find their different blood tapes, which would have made a transplant impossible, but we'll mm-hmm. bypass that logical <laughs> impossibility. And then at the end, they just, oh, we'll reverse it. Everything's fine. Nobody's traumatized in terms of the daughter of John Travolta or anything like that. She's fine. Everything's cool. Everybody's happy. Go back to normal. I'm sorry I shot you, Deb. Yeah. <laughs> what bit of the ending did you... The, the f- creepiest fuck bit where, like, here's a replacement for your dead child. And they oh, just yeah. brings in the kid and goes, yeah, this, is this okay? And they'll go, yeah. And then, like, the daughter takes the kid to presumably what is the dead kid's room. Mm. And it's a weird thing to do. Yeah. If, if, if you had a dead child and I brought home a similar looking child... <sighs> You go, that's a different penis. <laughs> oh, no. Well, um, about two thirds of the way through the film, uh, between the Somewhere Over the Rainbow sequence and... Did this, you notice who was singing that song? I, it's Olivia Newton-John. Oh, mm-hmm. that's interesting. I did read an article from The Shortlist, which was a deep dive into the making of Face Off that they published with the recent news that there's going to be a remake. And the studio initially didn't want John Travolta to adopt the son at the end. Not because of the reasons John (coughs) mentioned that may or may not make the edit of this episode, (laughs) but because it was un-American to adopt another man's child. Really? That was the reason they gave. And there was another ending, but the test audiences really liked that happy, well, happy-ish conclusion. It's just the way it's shot and stuff. It's really weird. And it's also like, you know, he's he's coming home and it's like, surprise, I've brought you a creepy child. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Very odd. Yeah, so there were lots of really interesting facts in this shortlist article, so I don't know how many of them you might know, but here's some face-off trivia just before I close my review. The original script for it was set a long way in the future to justify the surgery to the extent that all the cars were flying cars and they were chimpanzee slaves (laughs) helping humans. I want to see that film. (laughs) Yeah. When it was pitched, a Warner Brothers executive was worried about how good the makeup would need to be and didn't realise the actors would just need to swap (laughs) parts. Johnny Depp was almost going to star in it, but dropped out when he read the script and realised it wasn't about hockey. What? Yeah, I didn't understand that either. And that's also why it has a slash in the middle, because the studio wanted them to lose the slash between face and off. But John Woo and others thought it would just look like a hockey movie. Ah. So they had to make it obvious. Yeah. Well, speaking of things being made obvious, John Travolta had to have Nicolas Cage's line about the ridiculous chin explained to him. Because <laughs> the point was that he's so distinctive and the writers told him really, really good looking and the audience will find it funny that his chin is called ridiculous, but he thought it was just an insult. And Nicolas Cage's behaviour on set was quite interesting. Uh, Nicolas Cage kept repeating the face off line so many times that people on set were worried that Paramount would change the name of the film mm-hmm. entirely because he was did it 18 to 20 times in various <laughs> degrees of insanity and uh, it wouldn't stop. Um, <laughs> I, I love a film that names the title of the film in it. I always have a little chair in the cinema. It's like, <laughs> oh my God, he's some kind of RoboCop. And you go, hey! But they do that to an extreme. There's that scene where they just all 
say face off to each other for about two minutes. They really do. I must send you a YouTube link. There's about 20 minutes long of the name of the film being referenced mm-hmm. in the film. You'll, you'll, I would love that. You will enjoy that. <laughs> yeah. uh, the novelization of Face Off is also quite ridiculous. This is a description which actually ties into John's theories about penises. Um, this is a quote from the novelization of Face Off. From inside his pants, Archer was sure that a thousand topless French women the size of ants were erecting the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> That's his erection. That's brilliant. Is that supposed to be the feeling of someone else's erection? I, I believe so, yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and my final bit of trivia is that two staff members of The Daily Show with Trevor Noah did a Shakespeare in the Park version of Face Off this summer set in ancient Rome with the characters called Travoltus and Cagio, rewritten in iambic pentameter. <laughs> it only had two performances, but uh, the New was Yorker meant, did review it. Was it meant to only have two performances? I think it was intended to only have two performances. <laughs> I can't believe you didn't do that as a buff or bluff. So. I didn't. <laughs> um, so in conclusion, I could eat a peach for hours, but I don't think I could watch Face Off again. <sighs> so why do you love it so much? Why, what have I missed? Because uh, I, I found some bits really good, but overall I just found it a bit ridiculous. But they, they take his face off. off. <laughs> yeah, I know, but... Yeah. Yeah. It's right just there in the title. Yeah. It, it, it's just two actors. Just the, the actors are clearly having so much fun making, yeah. you know, playing each other, and it's just... You can you generally see the other actor in the other one, if you yeah. have any expression, because they've both got such expressive eyes. You can actually see the transition. They both did a cracking job at impersonating mm-hmm. each yeah. other. So apparently they spent two weeks in each other's company before the movie started. Oh, and poor pra- John Travolta. Yeah. I don't think I'd ever say that, but poor John Travolta. <laughs> um, but just kind of learning each other's mannerisms and developing mannerisms the other person could copy. And so ah. that, that's where some of it comes from. But for me, one of the creepiest things, there's this thing Travolta does all the time, where it's oh, just the like, oh, it's like, ah! Yeah. I, I do that to Andy all the time. <laughs> this is where you kind of rub your face, yeah. uh, your hand over. For the, the face. purpose of Horrible. the podcast listeners, Peter has just run his hand down my face. Was it fun? It was. It was beautiful. Uh, there's a thousand tiny Frenchmen building an Eiffel Tower in my pants right now. <laughs> Why do you love it, John? I like a good action film. Uh, I like there's not much CGI in there. It's got the really well choreographed action scenes. Yeah. Nicholas Cage being Nicholas Cage, but in a good film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just, I, I say, just you can tell that they're having fun. Yeah. And that's quite infectious. And I think it's two really, really good performances from people that have not always been great. In John Travolta's case, in other things, his family's good. Yeah, dull. Nick Cage is always. Yeah, you, yeah you, almost, you almost insulted Nick Cage there. There's kind of, I don't know whether it's because John Woo is not American, so it's, it's a foreign filmmaker, but there is a slightly odd off-kilter sensibility to it, particularly sort of in the family relationships and things. Did anyone find the casting of the wife an odd thing? Uh, yeah, she was a bit dull, wasn't she? And I don't know if you're just so unused to seeing women of the right age on screen, which is possible. I think she's I the same age as Travolta. Hmm. Yeah, but because it's... But it's just so dowdy in a way. Yeah. It? But maybe that's the idea, it's that he'd have much more ordinary life, whereas mm-hmm. Cage's mm-hmm. life would be more, you know, glamorous. And yeah, and outlandish. And it's kind of like this family have learnt important life lessons from having Nicolas Cage invade them. Sort of just relationship with his daughter out mm. has made his wife a bit more exciting. Yeah, there was a bit where Nicholas Cage and the daughter, or Nicholas Cage as Travolta and the daughter. Yeah, yeah, 
That's mm. creepy. That's, can I, can that I is just creepy. point out that the mother has lost a child, so she might not be like. Well, she's got another one now. The whole. It's fine. Oh, that's all right then, is it? Little Mike is there now. <laughs> His name was Adam. Oh, Adam <laughs> Michael was the one that died, wasn't yes, it? Adam yeah. is the yeah. Also, where do, where do American children get that haircut? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's horrible. Uh, for some reason, all cut. American kids in movie mm. have this sort of horrible little Lord Fauntleroy haircut. <laughs> it's just terrible. It's called the Danny Torrance, I believe, is the name of the cut. Uh. Whatever happened to John Woo? Because he directed Mission Impossible 2 in 2000 or 2001. And I haven't... He's back, in, back making films in China, I think. Right, okay. Obviously, he'd made a big name for himself in Hong Kong action movies yeah. before he did that with the uh, Chow Yun-Fat. Mm-hmm. This was his first American film? No, it, there was one with Steven Seagal? Or, mm. uh, or the, was it there was one with John Travolta. Hard Target? Broken Arrow with that, John Travolta? That was his second one, his second American one. Yeah, yeah I think this is his third. Mm. But he did Wind Talkers with Nicolas Cage afterwards, so presumably they did get on, which didn't do very well. Mm-hmm. Is that and the I, one about Navajo Indian yeah. code-breaking? So I think that was a bit of a flop, and I think that put an end to his Hollywood career. Face Off did feel very influential mm-hmm. for action yeah. films that came afterwards. Yeah, which is probably hard for you to judge in a way, because you're seeing a thing that's been ripped off in so many ways since. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's sort of two guns coming out the side of a vehicle... Yeah. to the ground and stuff like that. Slow motion. Just a little bit yeah. of yeah. slow-mo, the way that those effects are used. Um, it's the, the doves as well. Yeah, the doves. The doves of a John Woo trope, so yeah. again, in a lot of his earlier films. It was almost like an action version of, say, watching Citizen Kane after having watched all of the films that rip off Citizen mm. Kane and going, I've seen all of this in episodes of The Simpsons before. Now I'm seeing where they got it from. So you appreciate it, but in a whole different way than if I'd watched it the right way round. Yeah. If I appreciated the performances, I really liked the direction. Uh, I just didn't really get on board with, especially once the bomb went off, what they were aiming to do. His plan was to work within the FBI to get rid of all the other supervillains so um, that he was the only one left, yeah. left so that Pollux could step in and run an empire. So what was the plan after Pollux died? Just to shoot shit up. But he was cross. But in John Travolta's face. Yeah. Yeah. I liked the carving of the face at the end. I thought that was quite a... Nope. Uh, <laughs> but it was, it was quite in, a... In my <laughs> notes. Oh, fuck no, more gory face stuff. Yuck, yuck, stop cutting your own face off. Ah, <laughs> is what I wrote. <laughs> so no. No. Again, I had to look mm-hmm. away. It is of a sort of time and a genre of that particular type of film, which yeah. were all ridiculously over the top, had huge amounts of explosions, yeah, ridi- kind of ridiculous coming, amounts of gunfire. Year coming, after Con Air? Uh, yeah, we yeah. filmed it immediately after yeah. Con That yeah. weird thing where Nick Cage was a bankable action star for a few years. He had, you know, Con Air and The Rock. It does seem odd that people thought that was mm. a sensible thing to do. I mean, I mean, for me, I find Con Air, his performance is just ludicrously over the top. I loved it at the time. Yeah, but isn't that more fun, having a ludicrous, over-the-top performance? Would you prefer that or Die Hard? Nick Cage and Die Hard. Mm. Walking over the How glass. How to ruin Die Hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I think I, I would prefer that to a very dour, serious, deadpan kind of thing. Born Identity was mm. like the general trend now towards gritty and yeah. more serious ones mm. and and yeah that was about 2001 so i think maybe the the turn of the millennium that yeah. just makes serious stuff yeah but you all rewatched face off fairly recently yes. mm-hmm. yeah um so did it live up oh yes yeah 
I mean, I first watched it when I was 13 and I liked everything when I was 13, even um, Batman and Robin. So, <laughs> Yeah, Batman and Robin still has a place in my heart because I haven't watched it since 97. That's the mm-hmm. only way to keep that place yeah, <laughs> in your heart. Yeah. Um, but I totally understand where you're coming from with the needles. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> even the word. I'm sorry. But it acknowledges its ridiculousness. I think it's aware that it's ludicrous and doesn't take itself too seriously. Yeah, it doesn't try to justify or over-explain anything mm-hmm. because I think if it had gone down that path, it would have been a much less enjoyable film for it. I wanted 20 minutes of that's not your penis. Yeah, I think what you'd have ended up in with, the middle. The Eiffel Tower. Yeah. What you'd have ended up with is what I pulled out of John's sack. Uh, the, <laughs> the, um, was it a thousand French women the size of ants? <laughs> it was um, a 2015 Ryan Reynolds film. Is this the one where it becomes Ben Kingsley? Yeah. Um, and that, that took itself way too seriously. And I was like, I, I was watching it thinking, I'd rather be watching Face Off. Well, here's a question. If you could face off with anyone, who would you face off with essentially become but it's still you Ooh, Ooh Nicolas Cage <laughs> yeah even with all of his financial but he, he'd be you and he'd be living with Louise would you trust yes. Nick, Nick yeah, Cage yeah it goes both ways Louise? you don't just get to become take Nick Cage's face and yeah. live his life for a bit I'm not sure Louise would notice a difference yeah <laughs> <laughs> just the right amount of crazy yeah why is he running around singing and squeezing his ass and talking about peaches. And well, that's just that's just normal. Is <laughs> life what I want? Uh, Bearing in mind that they could potentially ruin yours. It's a weird one, but I might go with someone like um, Alexander Ocasio Cortez and um, maybe have a shot at becoming the next president. Under false pretenses, though. Actually, no, because if I did it, I would fuck it up. So let's just <laughs> let her get on with it. <laughs> While Peter and Hazel think of this, John will list his five favourite moments in Face Off. Five favourite moments in Face Off. Uh, syringes in the face, the <laughs> cutting of the face, Dan. the man without the skin. I'm not listening anymore. So I think there's one, maybe there's one action sequence too many. I enjoy the speedboat chase thing, but it just felt like one beat too many. Generally, would you prefer a movie to be tighter and shorter? Or, or do you just want as much of the movie as possible? Or or would you prefer that they keep that for the special edition? So if you know you love it, then you, you have extra. I think it very much depends on the film. I think comedy should be short. And mm-hmm. I think action films maybe should be short. But something like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which we talked about in the last podcast, has lots of diversions and long wears and mm-hmm. things. And that's what makes the film. You know, I wouldn't want to see a 90-minute version of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But I wouldn't want to see a three-hour version of Face Off. Yeah, I think sometimes with action films, when you see they have a runtime of 80-something minutes, my first thought is, oh, something's gone wrong here. Yeah. Um, mm. Maybe that's because we've been conditioned to expect two hours plus now, but it just makes you think there's been trouble and whole sections have been cut out. For a long time, movies were under two hours, generally, through mm-hmm. the 80s and 90s. I watched Spinal Tap yesterday, and that's 82 minutes long. I was yeah. amazed at how quickly it went... Yeah, I didn't mind the runtime of Face Off. It didn't Moves about outstay its welcome. Who would you face off with, Hazel? You've thought about it. Yeah. Can we include time travel as well? Yes. Cool. So I would um, face off with Emma Watson and time travel back to when she was 11 and about to star in the Harry Potter movies. And I would make Hermione the greatest character ever, which she is, but she doesn't come across on screen. Amazing. Yeah. Deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Dan, what would you give Face Off out of 10? Uh... 
probably five symbolic doves out of ten. There was enough of it that I enjoyed that I didn't dislike it, but there was enough that I just had either an issue with or couldn't watch because I'm too squeamish. So it's in the middle. Fair enough. Face half off. So that brings us to the end of another Nerdfest podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in two weeks' time. You can catch us on social media. We're at Nerdfest UK on Twitter and Facebook. If you fancy leaving us a review, we much appreciate it. We'll see you very soon, but you've been listening to... Let's do each other. (laughs) (laughs) But in the meantime, you've been listening to... Peter Johnson. John Farthing. Hazel Burton. John Farthing. No, have I got <laughs> No, we've done John Farthing. Oh, well, who haven't we done? Oh, Hi. Okay. <laughs> That's fine. I wouldn't. I wouldn't agree to the surgery. <laughs> <laughs>I'm Peter Johnson again. Thanks for listening. Oh, I see. yeah, I see. Because you're, you're Hazel, is that what you're saying? No, I'm you, but Hazel's me. And no, John, John, John's so being Hazel John's has being to Hazel. do the farewell. Yeah. John should do the farewell. Yeah, okay, cool. So until next time, you have been listening to... Dan Watkins. Peter Johnson. John Farthing. <laughs> Hazel Burton. <laughs> and we've gone all the Go way around it, again. Ian <laughs> <Be> McLaughlin. <laughs> This makes less sense than the movie. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Maybe not. (laughs) Now let's go eat a peach for hours. (laughs) AKA the pub. Bye. Bye. Bye.